at Haggai chapter 1 is just barely to the left of the New Testament. Uh, It's just before Zechariah and just after Zephaniah. It is only two chapters, so if you desire to follow along, I'll give you a moment to get there. If I don't hear pages turning, I will go ahead and begin. All right, Haggai, chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come. That is the time that the Lord's house should be built. And the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to yet lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages, earns wages to be put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. But why? says the Lord of hosts, because of my house, it is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruits. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and on the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. And then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, And Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, And the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Amen. And 1 Corinthians 2 is our next reading, and this is where our sermon will come from. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. Although Haggai does have a pretty strong relation to some of the points we were making uh, this morning, I'll uh, mention it briefly towards the end of the sermon, but our sermon will be on 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul writes, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. 
My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye is not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak. Not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Because, excuse me, but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. There is a bit of a joke among Christians. Maybe it's a a sad figure of speech, whatever you want to call it. It's about the Holy Spirit. Books have been named after this. Chapters have been written in books named after this. I'm not sure of the original origin of it, but I think there is a lot of truth to it. That line is this, the Holy Spirit is the forgotten or neglected person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the forgotten person of the Trinity. Now, it is sad and very often the case. Of course, certain Christian traditions have their own emphases that they're known for. Children, as you ride through town and look at the various church buildings, this is one thing that divides churches, sadly, an emphasis on one person of the Trinity. This tradition is known for its emphasis on the Father. That tradition is known for its emphasis on the Son. And that tradition is known for its emphasis on the Spirit. But would that God would deliver us from being known for anything less than fully Trinitarian. Now, there is not a percentage in preaching that you're taught in seminary or Sunday school to strike. You can't check off a certain box to say that you've preached enough on the Father, enough on the Son, or enough on the Spirit. You shouldn't spend one Lord's Day on each person and then start over every fourth Lord's Day. That's, that's not the point. What we ought to be doing is aiming at the emphasis that the text before us makes. And the emphasis in 1 Corinthians 2 is overwhelmingly on the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2... Paul spends the first five verses emphasizing the Lord Jesus and his crucifixion. While in the latter verses, he emphasizes the Holy Spirit. Now, when we speak of the Holy Spirit, 
This is different than what we say in the Shorter Catechism when we say that God is spirit, right? God, the Holy Spirit, is the third person of the Trinity, also known as the Spirit of Christ by Paul in other places. It is the Holy Spirit, as we confess in the Nicene Creed, and I would say rightly so, that he descends or proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, I just said that Paul uh, emphasizes the crucifixion of Christ in the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 2. That's a bit of an overstatement. He does mention the Spirit. He says so in verse 4, and he uses this phrase, the demonstration of the Spirit and of power or authority. The demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It was one of the chief differences between Paul and what we are often calling the super apostles that he and the other early church leaders were competing with in Corinth. You'll, as you read through 1 Corinthians 2, you get this comparison that Paul is making, not in human words, not in persuasive phrases, but by the Spirit, but by the wisdom of God. He's comparing himself to these other teachers and preachers that were uh, in competition with them in Corinth, probably uh, and nearly certainly not Christian preachers. He says that this is one of the chief differences between him. Because the Holy Spirit blows where he wishes, as we say in John 3, he was unassailable by the false super apostles. Children, that is to say that we cannot wrap our arms around the Holy Spirit or tell him to go here or to go there. They, uh, those who were in competition with Paul and the others were those who mocked the ministry that was marked by weakness, the ministry that was marked by fear, the ministry that was marked by much trembling. Instead, as the text says, they trusted in human wisdom and persuasive words. But they did not have, nor could they trust in, the Holy Spirit. This does not mean that our sermons should be blabbering messes of nothing, that it's a mark of holiness to not be persuasive, or a mark of holiness to not use human wisdom. It's a matter of trust. Paul and the apostles and those who served with them trusted in and depended on the demonstration of the Spirit and the authority that he brought. Those who were against them trusted in their own ability to articulate uh, whatever truth they were speaking of. Paul says that this Holy Spirit enables him and his fellow servants to speak wisdom among those who are mature. That is, those who are also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit brings a wisdom that is not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, he says. They are without the Spirit and are coming to nothing. It is because they lack the Spirit that they lack the wisdom that Paul speaks of. And because they lack the Spirit, they will come to nothing Paul emphasizes the Spirit in another way in Ephesians 1, where he describes him as the down payment or the deposit that God gives to Christians in this life to hold them for the next. You see, the place of the Spirit doesn't just have an immediate application. It has a future point as well. And the super apostles, these false apostles, lacked that. 
Quite frankly, they did not have the same message. The message of Paul and his fellow laborers was that of the wisdom of God. It could even be termed a mystery, as Paul calls it here, though in some sense it's one that can be solved because God revealed it, and it can be understood unto salvation. Paul says this message was ordained by God in verse 7. He says this hidden wisdom, this wisdom of God in a mystery, God ordained it before the ages for our, the church, glory. Paul says this message was ordained by God before the ages for the glory of the church. God ordained both that it would be hidden and that it would be revealed at the point at which it was. This is also referred to by Paul in Romans 5 when he says that the death of Christ occurred at the right time. This mystery, this thing that occurred at the right time is the person, the work, and the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, something interesting happens here in verse 8, where Paul says the rulers of this age, if they had known this, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, don't read over that too quickly. Let's think of what he's saying here. It doesn't mean that they would have honored him, right? It doesn't mean that if they had known who he was, if they would have known he was the Lord of glory, they would not have crucified him and instead of, you know, preserved his life forevermore. Amen. But what it does mean is that had they known what Jesus Christ and him crucified, verse 2, what that message and what his person would accomplish, they would not have crucified him because all they did was help. All they did was aid in God's uh, plan, as it were. The death of Jesus Christ conquered them. His death made it worse on them because his death meant his resurrection. And he could not rise from the dead unless he be first put to death. Even what those Jewish leaders who used the Roman uh, officials to accomplish, even what they desired to do in snuffing out the life of God's Son. If we kill him, he'll remain dead like all those before us. Even in what they desired to do, it was overturned and used, God says, to our glory and to his. If they would have known that it would have aided their enemies, they would not have done it. The things which God has prepared for those who love him, Paul says, is connected to that which came to pass due to Christ being crucified. God has prepared great things for those who love him. You have to let him define what those great things are, of course. But you must know that they are great nonetheless. This is, again, kind of a play on what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that all things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But of course, we have to let God define what is good. Just like here, we have to let God define what are these things that are prepared, these great things. We know they are great, but we must know that they occur because the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, was crucified, and by implication, resurrected and ascended. Now, he also does something funny in verse 9 and 10, the transition as well. In some sense, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, 
nor has it entered into the heart of man, those things which the Lord has prepared. However, do you see what Paul does in verse 10? He says, but God, kind of like Ephesians 2, a but God statement. Those are always powerful. Paul says, but God has revealed those things, the things that eye has not seen, the things that ears have not heard, the things that have not entered into the heart of man. God has revealed those things to us through his spirit. For those who have the spirit of Christ, these things are not unseen, they're not unheard, and they have not failed to enter into our hearts. Indeed, they have done all those things. And why? Because the Spirit searches all things. The Spirit searches out what we cannot see and enables us to see it. The Spirit searches out what we cannot hear and enables us to hear it. The Spirit is the cleansing and healing instrument of God that applies Jesus Christ to us. By Him searching, He is revealing even the deep things of God, Paul says. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is why he is connected with words like regeneration and conversion. When we speak of salvation, he brings the light. He brings life. Remember how God creates. He creates by the word of his power through the Spirit, even in creation. The Spirit hovered over the waters, and the word spoke, and the Spirit brought life. He shines the light of the Lord, not just into the darkness, but into our hearts as well. Just as the spirit of man understands man, Paul says, so the spirit of God understands the things of God. And because we have the spirit, we can understand the things of God. Another thing that Paul picks up on at the end of this is we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We have the spirit working in us and through us so that we can understand the things of God. It is as if through salvation we participate in the knowledge of God. Because we have the Spirit, we can understand the things of God. Those who don't have the Spirit, Paul says very simply, cannot understand these things and instead must implement other measures in order to imitate and challenge the work of God in the world. Indeed, the work that has been caused by the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. Look at the revealing power of the Spirit in verse 12. If you have your Bible open, if not, listen to the revealing power of the Spirit. We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. He reveals the things that have been given to us by God. What enables you to grow in your understanding of Christianity? It is the Holy Spirit. What enables you to grow up into the fullness of the understanding of what your baptism was, even if it was performed when you can't remember it? It is the Holy Spirit. What are the things that, or what is the thing, or who is he that enables us to understand what God has given us? It is the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul closes the passage by coming back to his original point about the difference in manner and message of those preachers that were opposing him. Because the church of the Lord Jesus is the place of his truth. It is the place where the Holy Spirit teaches. It is not the place 
where the ways of man win. It is not a place for man's wisdom that is in the world. Don't, don't hear me saying that man's wisdom is necessarily evil, though it certainly can be. The truth is, in the church, it is the Spirit and the Spirit alone that brings about the truth. He shines the light on the truths of life and salvation revealed in the Scriptures. Anytime you're listening to a sermon and something dawns on you, anytime you're singing a hymn and something clicks, anytime you're at prayer and the Lord persuades you of something, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. And without the Spirit, those things would remain hidden and closed to you. Paul says the natural man does not receive these things. Indeed, he cannot. This is an an explanation of why unbelievers come and go, why people whom we invite to church can come and go, because without the gift of the Spirit, the message of Christianity is just one among many, rather than seen as the truth. In verse 15, Paul makes a point that, I want us to kind of close the Lord's Day with. I've got a couple other things, but I really want you to grab a hold of this. In verse 15, he says, He who is spiritual, that is, he who has the Spirit, judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. And by implication, we can say, by no one but the Lord. The point I want you to get is the fact that you and I, we will all stand before the Lord as individuals to be judged by him. We'll be judged by him for all that we've done, all the the various vocations or offices that we've filled, whether it be, you know, uh, elder, father, and husband, or just father and husband, or whatever the case may be, whether it be uh, mother and wife, um, and whatever uh, offices or vocations you fill, whatever those are, if you have the Spirit, God says you have the ability to judge all things. You, you are called to and equipped to make decisions. The Holy Spirit enables you to discern truth from error. He who is spiritual judges all things. And because of your the gift given to you by the Spirit to be able to do that, you yourself are under the judgment of no man. But you are under the judgment of God. Now this can lead us into plenty of ditches, but it is something that I want you to understand this evening. You have, by the Spirit, the ability to discern truth from error. And God expects you to do it. You don't worry about what so-and-so says. You worry about how the Lord leads you. That is simply one of the um, dangers or uh, scary parts about Christianity, that God gives you his spirit to make those decisions. You don't give your reason to other people. You submit to the leading of the spirit. Let me make a note about covenant children and then a note about uh, church architecture or the building of churches based on Haggai 1 that's also both of these are related to the spirit but did you know that in baptism covenant children are promised among other things the holy spirit now don't be those who when they see their child beginning to grasp things of the christian faith look on it with skepticism Or look on it as, well, they should know more. Maybe they should. That's between them and the Lord. 
But that they are getting it at all is proof of the presence of the Spirit and his work. It's not proof of his absence or reason for skepticism. Now, on Haggai 1, uh, we could tie it uh, to a lot of things from this morning's sermon. But in Haggai 1, maybe you heard it. If not, I'll remind you very briefly. God calls on his people to get back to work building his house. The implication was they... Uh, had quit building his house and had been more concerned about their own. You have these houses, look at my house. It's all dilapidated. Now, if you, you step back and think for a moment, if God is a spirit, why would he be so concerned about his house? Well, God likes to be honored, right? God had commanded the people in the book of Exodus and given them the gift of the spirit in order to build these things. But we know that the spiritual nature of God, the fact that God is spirit, did not mean he was unconcerned about the building of his house. How much more so in this age with the giving of the Holy Spirit? As Paul's argument goes in Hebrews, we have more. Does God require less? In Exodus 31 Verses 1 to 5, I'll close with this. In Exodus 31, verses 1 to 5, one of the records of the the giving of the Spirit in Exodus. Listen to what he gives the Spirit for. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship or craftsmanship, to design, to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. As I reminded you this morning that God cares about music because music is powerful, I would remind you, based on Haggai 1 and the gift of the Spirit in general, that God cares about what his church, not just that it is, but he cares about what it looks like. He simply does. Just because he is a spirit, just because he's given the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean things have taken on an invisible nature. The Spirit produces these fruits, and these fruits glorify God. And if they did so in Haggai 1, how much more so in the age of the Holy Spirit in which we live. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the life-giving source of the church that unites us to Jesus Christ. When then you, Jesus Christ, present us to your Father who becomes our Father. These gifts are beyond our full comprehension, but we do comprehend them unto salvation by your grace and work in us by the Holy Spirit. We have so many things to thank you for. Send us away this Lord's Day. Help us to close the day and prepare for the week in greater dependence upon you by your Spirit. For Paul reminds us not to quench the Holy Spirit. Grant these things as we pray to you with the prayer Christ taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, 